Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's session on modernizing actuarial education. I think the um, placement of this session towards the end of the convention is very timely and um, giving us an opportunity to bring together a lot of what we've heard throughout the convention and thinking about how we can make um, our education framework more relevant um, towards supporting um, the work of actuaries into the future. So today we've got two speakers who will be talking about modernizing actuarial education um, from different perspectives. The first is um, Andrew Gladwin, who will be talking about modernizing actuarial education in terms of um, recent local and international developments. And then secondly, we've got a team um, comprising Francois Stradom, Matthew Smith and Bert Furster who will be talking about a topic called Mark My Words, which should um, both be very interesting. While we're going through the talks, if you could please keep your questions, and then towards at the end, we'll, we'll have a discussion on both topics. Thank you. Andrew? Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, I think uh, we've talked a lot about the, the future and the profession and changes going on and as you saw in Peter's talk I mean education is very much the bedrock of the emerging profession the transforming profession and I think education I think by by sort of implication often has has a sense of being behind the times or being very slow I know anecdotally uh, when I matriculated I was actually the very last class who used log tables uh, for my matric exams now, I mean, I know I'm not the youngest, but uh, when I d did my trick, there were actually some fairly good calculators around. And obviously, the last time I used the log tables was during my matric exam. So, I mean, that's, that's an example of education not adapting to, to change. And I think, obviously, on the education side, on the actuarial side, we need to make sure we're um, up there. So, um, actual education from the past, um, Many of you probably have seen the Bartschmidt movie or at least heard about it. I think it sort of set the image of the actuary back qu quite a while, uh, you know, in terms of actuary being very introverted, uh, just focused on numbers, not people, no people skills, uh, um, operating in a very narrow range of, of life insurance, sort of one, one career uh, during the whole time. Um, and I think in a way that's, also, that's sort of the image of the actuary and the sort of education we're doing that we need we need to move from. Uh, if you also look at that slide there, you'll see a UK syllabus. I think it's from about um, 20 years back, and that is the entire syllabus of a subject. Um, so um, it was actually a new it was actually a new area for actuaries. But I think from an education point of view, it's not very modern in the sense that it gives you no idea of what you need to know. Do you know? Do you do you need to have it's got four topics, seven words there. Do you need to have a doctoral level knowledge of those topics? Do you need to basically read a paragraph from them? So it's actually very poorly defined in terms of what the people doing that subject need to know. And I'll come back to that point now. So I, th um, I think in both Roseanne's talks uh, yesterday and Peter's talks today, I think there's quite a bit uh, of discussion around various things happening on the education side, both globally and locally. Um, 
I've been lucky to be involved in, in both processes, I think particularly on the international side. Um, Peter mentioned there was a, a task force which updated or was looked uh, tasked to update a new syllabus for the profession globally. Um, and I was fortunate to chair that and we've actually now come to the end of uh, basically a four-year process um, to agree a global syllabus. Um, the, the global syllabus was approved by the International Actual Association Council just about 10 days ago in Chicago. Um, and that's a culmination of a long process. And I think to get agreement among 70 odd full member countries around that, I think there was some good discussion. And I think to get that done in four years, I think was fairly impressive given the sort of changes that I'll talk to you a bit around in, in, in some of the detail of the talk now as well. Um, and we had some very good discussions and, you know, pushbacks and things like that and possibly one or two people with less than a modern mindset. But I think that's quite powerful for the global profession to actually now have a syllabus which defines in some detail what the qualities and requirements are. It's not just a list of topics but actually a detailed um, almost menu and, and requirement of, of what an actuary should have in terms of not just knowledge but skills, aptitudes, abilities. Um, and I think a lot of that's also been driven by um, the processes that, that uh, again, Peter and Roseanne have spoken around and, and also in the SA magazine around the non-sort of technical education, what we sometimes call the normative skills, soft skills sometimes, although I hate that word, um, your communication, your professionalism as well. And that's really a process that's, that's been pioneered in many respects by the actual Society of South Africa, by people like Mickey Lartho, who've, who've uh, received a Murray Medal, Wendy McMillan, and, and others as well. Um, and that's part of what's, what's come into the global syllabus as well. So we, we've come to the end of a process, but uh, as I said, education is often behind the times, and it's, it's important that the evolution and almost revolution in education becomes an ongoing thing as well. So it's not a static point where we can say, now I've got a global syllabus now. You know, we, we, we can educate actors for the next 10 years because sure as things have changed so much in the last 10 years, things will change possibly even faster in the next 10 years. So I'm just going to talk around four broad themes around where education has evolved and changed. Um, and the first one is really around expanding the actual footprint. So I think a question that, that you often get uh, which is often very difficult to come up with a quick answer is what does an actuary do? Um, and in fact, I, um, uh, my seven-year-old son had a project at school where they had to do a careers day and did an actuary and was sort of asked that question. And obviously, it's quite difficult to explain uh, in sort of seven-year-old terms. And sometimes, I suppose, the very sort of narrow definition, sometimes maybe it is more useful at, uh, at, at that level, is actually someone who calculates insurance premiums. So, you know, they have a very narrow focus, you know, they can calculate specific risks and those sort of things and they come up with insurance premiums. And I think a lot of the evolution, almost revolution in, in the thinking is that actuaries are actually a profession that solves a wide range of problems involving financial risk in a wide variety of organizations. I mean, every organization has financial risk, even non-financial services. And the sort of almost thinking that an actuary can actually play a role in any organization. And we're seeing this now with the uh, 
moving into enterprise risk management and actually is becoming CROs in, in a wide variety of associations. You might well have seen Arthur Elsa's actually in a hard hat. And I think it's very important that we do think about the profession widely because I think a growing profession is one that, that is, is evolving, not a profession that narrowly defines what it does. Um, um, you know, if you think about accountants, um, I mean, accountants, if you define accountants, what do they do? They report finances for any organization. So you have accountants in, in, in your organization. If actuaries define themselves just in insurance or pensions, we're severely narrowing the, the range of work we can do. And again, I think um, actual society has been very pioneering in moving into a very important area of banking and actually saying actuaries can actually add an incredible amount of value in that area. So in terms of evolving, almost revolutionizing the actual syllabuses globally, one important thing has, has been to um, ensure that the syllabus is more generic. So it's not just focused on insurance companies, not just focused on life contingencies and again, DXs and those sort of things, which you obviously don't use because you've got computers now. Um, and ensuring that, that that toolkit is actually applicable in a wide variety of associations. And one of the most exciting things about banking is a lot of the traditional actual t uh, tools like your multi-state models and your um, run of triangles can and actually have very useful applications on the banking side as well. So it's not just changing the toolkit, it's just making sure that that syllabus equips actuaries to some, many of them will work in traditional areas, but can also ensure that actuaries can work in a wide variety of situations. You know, emerging areas like banking, enterprise risk management, and even areas that we, you know, we haven't even thought around. I think the second point is um, around that very short UK syllabus I showed you. So this is sort of, a, I suppose, a slightly philosophical uh, sort of conversation here. Um, <laughs> and okay, it might seem a little bit surrealistic, but I think just to explain that, I was going to take a step back and in, in the new IS syllabus, if you happen to go, go through the details, we use a framework uh, called Bloom's Taxonomy, and actually the revised Bloom's Taxonomy, and that actually defines uh, both um, the type of learning and, um, and as well as the, the sort of level of, of thinking involved. So your type of learning ranges from um, basically memorize, remember, right up to create new knowledge. Um, so it obviously goes from sort of a, a lower level to a high level. Your, your type of thinking, um, or sorry, your type of knowledge goes from sort of basically um, sort of factual knowledge, you know, so 2 plus 2 equals 4 at a very basic level, right up to what they call metacognitive knowledge, which is actually almost the sort of a self-awareness around what you don't know. Um, so knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, knowing yourself and knowing where you can and where you can't. And of course, those of you who know the professional conduct standard know that one of the key aspects of professionalism is knowing what you can do and knowing where you can get advice. And so the, the new IS syllabus, every single objective is defined in terms of that Bloom's taxonomy, which is actually a matrix of the uh, type of thinking and the, and the type of knowledge. Um, and you know, within that and within those skills, it's also actually understanding what you don't know. Um, and in fact, when we, I was working on the IAA syllabus task force, I mean, we actually 
joked around an extent, but it was true. I mean, we actually became very good in terms of working on the new syllabus in knowing what we don't know because there's a lot of areas there which you know, are new to when we, on the syllabus task force, qualified as actuaries. So I think part of a modern education system is a very clear setting out of the depth of knowledge required uh, as, and, and the sort of skill involved. And that also links into appropriate assessment because certain types of assessment are obviously not, um, or certain types of topics are not uh, going to be linked to a three-hour exam paper. Um, so sort of knowing what you don't know or knowing that you're ethical, you know, you can't test in, a, in, a, in, in that context. Um, so I think it then talks to flexibility around assessment as well. Okay, the third aspect, and again, one that I've already sort of inferred and uh, mentioned a lot is, um, and um, the sort of Dilbert, I think it sort of, sort of almost harkens back to the old days. I mean, I think I sort of probably came into the profession at the tail end of the era when, you know, even, even if uh, the, the client actually didn't actually understand what you were saying, it was fine because it was actually, it was actual judgment and the report was sort of accepted and done. And I think very much, I think even the, the most best and technically proficient or best reputation actually always going to be challenged now by people who, you know, in, in business or people from other professions because we don't have a monopoly on, on the knowledge and skills. And, you know, we're in a world where we're competing for professional reputation. We've had instances where actuaries have not lived up to professional promise as well. And I think very core to, to the nature of an actuary, possibly even more core in the South African context, is those delivery skills. And we're talking more than just your professionalism, professionalism, of course. In our delivery skills, we're talking around communication. We're talking about teamwork. Uh, you know, we're talking around um, understanding business strategy, project management, you know, some, some of the things which are very much not actuarial, but actually core to an actuary being effective in delivering professional promise. And the South African Normative Skills Program, I think, has been pioneering in terms of entrenching that in our education system. And I think one of the most exciting aspects of the new IAA syllabus is that the, we have a subject there which is called personal and actual professional practice, which basically covers those key normative delivery skills. So it basically says that every actuarial association around the world to offer a recognized actual program will have to have these, these sort of programs or, or these sort of skills as part of someone becoming a fully qualified actuary. And I think to me that is very much part of, of modernizing actual education. Okay, the fourth area is, is probably more specific, uh, but I think very important. Um, you know, again, we've, we've talked to data, big data, um, machine learning, which uh, probably a bit of a preview of the session coming up and, and other things, but areas around data, the systems that we, we put data onto are very important. Um, and I think the actual toolkit has made actuaries in a position where we can work with data, but I think we have found that probably the actual syllabuses have lagged a bit this importance of, of big data. So again, 
in the new IA syllabus, we have a specific area called data and systems, which covers uh, many of the basic data analytic topics, covers a little bit of machine learning, and I think very importantly covers the ethics and professionalism around data, because I think one area where actuaries can really add value in data is, is, is around that, because in data you've got the quants who, who probably have even stronger statistical skills and they've been doing data for a while. Um, but I think the actuaries should be in a better position to be able to say this is what's coming out, does it make sense, apply judgment to data, and I think particularly apply professionalism and ethics because I think the, the rise of big data and the sort of um, things that Facebook can do, which I think those who went to the uh, economic session earlier um, were mentioned, the sort of data and confidentiality and those sort of things, Th those raise quite important ethical issues um, and I think as an actuary who's, who's pledged to upholding the public interest it's very important that, that we are professional around that and I think that's one of the areas that we um, yeah that, that we can add a lot of value so there are a number of changes I think a lot of them can be summarized in, in, in those four areas um, I've shown the actuary of the past, um, and I was trying to think of a role model for, for the actuary of the future, and I believe actually it's, it's everyone out here, um, not you know, including those who've already qualified, um, because I think a lot of these skills and thinking are going to be an important part, not just of basic education, but also of our continuing professional development. You know, a very important premise of of education or actual education is it doesn't just finish the point you qualify. Um, and you know, what are the sort of skills we need to have in the future? And I mean, I think ethical is absolutely important. I mean, I think South Africa at the moment, globally, that has to be a key part of professional promise. I think more and more we have to become an all-rounder, um, so also adaptable to, to operating in different practice areas, um, you know, moving between um, sort of very technical stuff and, and you know more communication and pre presenting lifelong learning is critical I think it's important that actually it becomes a profession of choice I mean I think we've done fairly well in South Africa in, in attracting many talented people here but I think on the premise that actors can actually operate in a variety of roles and a variety of associations you know we shouldn't try and think of ourselves as an exclusive club where we're actually trying to keep people out I think we can become very much uh, profession of choice, maybe not quite as big as the accountants, but, but you know, people who who operating in, in many non-traditional areas, many non-traditional firms, and many non-traditional roles, maybe within traditional firms as well. And I think important that at the same time, we're African and world class. Those are certainly not ever going to be mutually exclusive things. And then keeping the balance of the technical and delivery skills. You know, the technical toolkit, um, and I think this is a big part of our discussions at the IA level is still very important. You know, you can't have someone who's a brilliant communicator, um, ethical and that sort of thing, but actually doesn't understand the basic technical concepts. So in no ways can we actually water down the technical foundation of profession. We just need to make sure that that technical foundation is updated and modernized, um, you know, as, as we've seen with the introduction of more data and statistics around data. So yeah, hopefully in, in the last uh, almost 20 minutes, uh, 
we've covered some of what I think is almost a revolution in actual education. Um, I think we have modernized. I think the challenge has been that maybe having achieved a certain milestone in terms of the agreement of the IA syllabus that we continue to, to modernize, grow, and, and remain flexible in very much the dynamic world and, and country. Uh, thank you for your time and look forward to questions later. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'd like to now ask Matthew to come up and talk about, um, mark my words, Francois. All right. Um, thank you very much, Andrew. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the actuary of the future um, is definitely going to be very different from the actuary of today. Um, and it's very important that we um, take the time to really think how we're going to educate the actuary of the future. And that's really what we're going to be talking about. It's something that we've been working on for the past few months, something that we're very passionate about, we're very excited about. Um, and it has to do with, um, more on a micro level, how do you train the actuary um, and, and the educational process? So, to give you an overview of what we're going to be talking about today, I'll be giving you a bit of a background of what, we're going to, what we did and, and why we did it, um, sort of the motivation for, for what, what it, what it um, was that we did. Um, Matt's going to be taking you through exactly uh, who Mark is, um, what he does, how he works, he'll give you some examples, um, and then finally Bert will take you through um, what the future holds, where we think um, we can go with this, um, and what we still want to do. All right. I believe that the motion picture is destined to revolutionize our educational system and that in a few years it will supplant largely, if not entirely, the use of textbooks. Any ideas for who quoted this and when? This was Thomas Edison in the year 1922. Remember when we all still studied from textbooks and paper-based notes? <laughs> in the 1930s, it was the radio. In the 1950s and 60s, it was the television. In the 1980s and 90s, it was the computer. Today, it's tablets, smartphones, online courses, the internet that are all poised to change education forever. But none of this has made any fundamental change to education. People still largely learn in the same way. With each of these educational revolutions, people have said this will change education, but it hasn't. And, and I believe the reason why none of these have made a, a, any significant difference in how people learn um, has to do with fundamentally how people learn things. If you look at today, people still learn largely on their own, individually, grappling with material, aided by classes where a single teacher teaches a group of students in person. And, and that's been the model for, for thousands of years of education. And, and I think the reason why that's sort of stayed the same is because to, to, to learn something, to, um, to if, if you're learning something difficult, and from own, my own experience, uh, writing actuarial exams, which is a, a pretty big sample size, by the way, so it's definitely statistically significant. So um, <laughs> I have some, some basis to, to speak from. Um, to learn something difficult, you have to, um, let me just grab some water, to, you, to learn something difficult, you have to exert a significant amount of mental effort. And the more mental effort you exert, the more memorable the thing that you're learning. And all the while, these educational revolutions 
are making things easier for the student. People are trying to make it easier, making them have to think less. And that's, I think, goes against what we should be doing. I think you should be engaging the student and trying to maximize what's happening inside their own head. And so, although the um, external um, environment is very important, and it's very important to have access to, to good um, study materials, um, better study materials is not going to um, make you learn, right? So, we saw um, in the plenary session yesterday, um, one of the students with the paper video got 100% in physical science. Yes, he had great access to uh, external materials, but do you think he got 100% for physical science by just watching some videos? No, I think he worked his butt off. Right, you have to exert a significant amount of effort to get the results. Right, so I think that's really where the core lies. So let me give you an actual example. Let's say you're studying product, uh, product design. Let's say you're studying for your F102 exam. We all know this list, um, or, or the new actuaries anyway. Um, let's say you're studying this list, you're studying for your exam. You can go and recite this list uh, 100 times, and then you'll know a generic list of product design factors, right? which you'll probably forget two weeks later if you don't recite it again and again. Or I can say to you, let's say you're actually working at a South African life insurance company that wants to launch a new limited underwriting version of its current life insurance product. Discuss the factors that you would consider in the design and launch of this new product. <laughs> I think you can guess why I got this. Um, <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is, if you want to learn, put yourself into this situation. You have to really think. Think very hard what you would do if you're in this case. If you're in the shoes of this actuary, because this is a real example. Real actuaries are faced with cases like this every day. So what would you do? You have to form your own opinions. You have to put yourself out there and then test yourself against the memorandum and see how did you do. And it's in cases like this where true learning happens. What's true in sports is true in education. You have to practice how you play. You have to keep going back. You have to lift the weights again and again, regardless of whether on some days you can and other, other days you can't. There's no magic six-pack abs belt that can vibrate away the fat while you sit on the couch. <laughs> Doesn't exist. So with all of this in mind, Matt and Bert and I asked ourselves, what can we do using our knowledge of the educational process that we, we've gone through um, together with our knowledge of new technologies? How can we research something that can possibly improve even a little bit um, a small part of, of the actuarial education process. And so we decided to take the process of doing past exam questions and to try and enhance that. And so we created Mark. Right. Hello? Hello? There we go. So what is Mark? Very simply, Mark is a text analytics engine that's designed in order to grade and provide feedback to students on past paper attempts. Now generally when I say this or say that we're building this engine, there's a quite, quite a common response and that's, well, isn't it the fact that the student is attempting the past paper and actually marking it that develops a more fundamental understanding of the subject matter? And if that's the case, why do you want to take this process away from the student? And my response to this is generally, I completely agree with you. I think doing past papers and marking them 
does develop a deeper understanding. But my question is, is it the mechanics of marking that develops this deeper understanding? Or is it identifying ideas not previously identified, internalizing them, and using them going forward that develops a deeper understanding? Now, the three of us believe it is the latter. And if that is true, don't we rather want a tool that removes the mechanics of marking away from the student? Don't we want a tool that marks past papers consistently and objectively across cohorts and across time so that students can in real time understand where they are, where they rank relative to their peers, relative to different uh, cohorts over time, and possibly relative to a fictitious park pass mark. Further, don't you want a tool that can provide feedback to students in real time, whether they've captured ideas or captured points, what they've missed, and kind of guide them in areas that they're weak or that they're strong? And then finally, don't you want a tool that provides a comprehensive list of ideas that students should have, stu that students should have captured when attempting a point? or attempting a question. Now, the three of us believe that a tool like this would aid in educating actuaries of the future. And so we've designed Mark in order to try and encapsulate these ideas. But that's quite a grandeur vision. Currently, Mark is a proof of, a proof of concept. He doesn't do all these things incredibly well yet. We just wanted to see, well, this is a difficult problem to solve if it is solvable. Let's see how close we can, or let's perform a proof of concept to see if we can actually start getting somewhere towards a solution for this problem. So currently, he's a simple text analytics engine. Why I say simple is because, as we'll see later, we didn't have a lot of data to build this engine on. So you have a little bit of data that informs the complexity of these algorithms, so you're going to have fairly simple algorithms. He's only geared towards F102. Now, why we chose F102 is because that's where uh, the majority of our clean data existed and where the three of us have some experience in. And currently, he's able to mark questions uh, to a reasonable level of accuracy, as well as provide feedback and provide a comprehensive list of ideas for a specific question. Right. Um, yes. So generally, what we're going to do now, there's three questions that get asked. Does this thing work? If it doesn't work, then kind of wasting our time to just explain anything else. If it does work, how does he work? And if I'm comfortable with how he works, let's kind of see an example. Let's get into a little bit more detail. So let's look at Mark's performance. Now, the first thing I want to focus on is the data. We only had 23 different attempts spanning 22 different questions. So not a large data set. Um, since then, ASA has provided us with an enormous amount of data. Unfortunately for this presentation, we haven't had time to pre-process all of it and, and run it through the system. But what we saw from Mark in his current state is that if we gave him a half a mark margin, we had a classification accuracy of about 61%. If we push this up to a full mark margin, we got a classification accuracy of 78%. And just from that, we got a fair amount of confidence, given additional data, time, and complexity of these algorithms, we could push this up uh, to a, a, a 
acceptable level of accuracy. Um, so the next thing I wanted to look at was an A versus E's, uh, A versus E. So there's our 23 attempts, just to see how this model was predicting marks and if there was any clear bias, if it was favoring certain areas, uh, and so on. From this, we saw that there wasn't any clear bias from this model, and which gave us additional comfort that this problem is solvable. So once we got to that, we were pretty comfortable that uh, this proof of concept had kind of, we did tick it down to a successful proof of, proof of concept. Now for how he works, is we get an attempt and a standardized ASA memo. All right. What Mark then does is it, or he identifies specific points or specific ideas within each attempt and assigns a possible maximum mark to those attempts. It then correlates them with points in the memo to get some kind of uh, prior mark per point. Those can be aggregated to get a prior uh, mark per question and per paper. However, as you all know, the ASA memos are not comprehensive. So there's generally a lot of ideas that exist that, that do score points that don't exist in the memo. So what we then do is we look at all the attempts that he's ever seen, and we start correlating points within those and identify natural clusters that are occurring within, uh, within the attempts for this question. Once we have those natural clusters, they get validated by an, uh, an examiner or an individual, and that forms a comprehensive list of ideas or points that score mark. At which point this process repeats itself, and then we sit with a uh, bunch of posterior marks for each point, which can be aggregated to get marks per question and marks per paper. And then we have a marked, uh, marked past paper attempts and a comprehensive list or a comprehensive memo. All right, so that's on a high level how it works. Here was just an example that we went through just to see on the lowest level of detail how it works and whether he's actually sp spitting out results that make sense. So we fed a simple question into it and we just identified that for, uh, or we just kind of wanted to get some comfort around f points that should be scoring half a mark, whether they are scoring half a mark, some points that were longer, that had more of an elaborate explanation with an example, scored a full mark, and those that were borderline that we don't think should have scored a mark, wasn't scoring a mark. All right, so that's kind of coming, that's coming to the end of the kind of technical side of mark. Um, Bert is going to take us through the kind of where we see this going and how we can develop it further. Thanks, Matt. Is my mic on? Oh, cool. Yeah, so, so Franja gave us a bit of background. Um, Matt introduced us to Mark, and I think what I'm going to do is just tie up kind of these things and give us a couple of use cases. To understand the use cases is pretty simple, like Matt mentioned F102. So you start off in actual exams, you have numbers. You're good at numbers, you're good at math, that's what you do. Now you strike CA1, like suddenly it turns to words, and like if you're like me, becomes a bit harder. So you start making, thinking up solutions. Now these are one of the more legal solutions that you can <laughs> address the problem with of passing these high level exams. All right, so Mark is using cutting edge technology to solve a real world problem. 
and this is pretty exciting, or at least for us. So there's three main areas where, where Mark can be used. Um, and, and firstly, Mark could potentially add a new dimension to the exam preparation process for actuarial students. Secondly, Mark's skill set makes him a well-suited candidate to help out ASA's examiners. And thirdly, once Mark's job at ASA is done, we don't think he'll have a hard time finding work elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so firstly, looking at Mark for students. So, like Francois said, doing past papers is a key part of the exam preparation process. And this, kind of doing a question and marking it is, is pretty hard. At least, if you don't know what you don't know, how do you mark your, your answers? So, what Mark does is it allows the student to, in real time, get a mark. Like what Mark would have scored for this attempt. That would be pretty cool. Secondly, it allows the student to start understanding this link between the type of question being asked and the structure, structure of answer expected, which is something like I've personally struggled with. And then thirdly, also just managing your time. So what's pretty cool is if you have these three insights in real time, you just go one step further, and you can start creating structure in the whole exam preparation process. You can assess a student's probability of passing at each point and tell him if he's making progress. You can help him manage his time correctly. Um, like questions aren't all at the same difficulty levels. So sometimes you have to spend a bit more time here, a bit less time here. So if you don't have a lecturer, if you're studying, if you're working, these would be pretty cool benefits to have. All right, so that's mark for students. Then we get mark for examiners. Now, each year more than a thousand exams are written by actuarial students. And these exams need to be marked by qualified actuaries. Now, these guys are scarce and expensive, which is not a problem. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, there's considerable cost underlying the, the exam process. So there's three main areas where Mark could come potentially, or potentially could come in handy for examiners. Firstly, um, what if Mark could help the examiner? get the spread of topics in a paper and difficulty spread of questions consistent with previous papers. Like, just making sure the paper isn't completely way out. I don't know if this is a problem, but I think it could be. <laughs> papers always feel difficult for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, once the paper has been written, and Matt touched a bit on this, Mark can be used to aggregate students' scripts look for correlations between points, assess this against the memo that the examiner set up, and present the examiner with a list of points that maybe should be in the memo but were excluded. So it helps the examiner to kind of create this comprehensive memo. And then thirdly, once the examiner has this memo, you can use Mark to run through the scripts. So three, oh wait, let's go back. Well, but those three <laughs> kind of uh, features of Mark brings you to, to, I think, three important benefits. And firstly, it allows the examiner to make sure that scripts are assessed in a consistent way. You don't have multiple examiners, you have one system marking, so you know that your scripts are assessed consistently. Secondly, 
you can probably get your marks out a bit quicker because it's automated and then thirdly it could lower costs which could make the exams a bit cheaper all right <laughs> so so that's mark for students mark for examiners and then like this thing is pretty cool right so like <laughs> we don't if <laughs> if it works well we don't see the possibilities being limited you have national senior certificate you have cfa exams that have written components i mean you can even go to insurance call center get a transcript of a sales call and test validity by checking if questions were asked in the call by assessing text assessing ideas so like mark for students mark for examiners and we are very excited about this and we hope that mark could potentially be one of the key factors that help train a new generation of really like super actuaries. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for your time. Um. Great. Thank you so much. Um, if I could start off the question session with the upcoming exams being imminent, um, do you think Mark would be available to help me with my batch of marking? Because <laughs> that would really go down a treat. <laughs> I guess soon. <laughs> still, still quite a lot of development that needs to be done. Great. So I think we had uh, a talk um, on the bigger picture of where actuarial education is developing and the critical role that uh, we're playing in modernizing actuarial education and then also a really nice example of where actuarial analytical skills are being used to tackle uh, a real problem or a real area where we can develop. So some very exciting topics. If we could give the speakers a round of applause, please. Um, are there any questions? Could the speakers come join me on stage to, to answer? Thanks, could we start in the middle there? Um, you've got a mic, great. I did promise to ask Andrew a very difficult question, so here we go. I've been asked this question and I'm told that sharing is caring, so I'm handing it over to you. Why would any self-respecting university graduate join the profession to undertake a program of study that takes on average seven years to qualify and doesn't change very much, it's not particularly dynamic? What is it that we're going to do as a profession to make this more modern and relevant and attractive to young, bright students? Well, I think I'd um, challenge on both the time to travel because I think, you know, what we're talking around in terms of the, say, the IAA basic qualification is the associate level, which I think can take a lot less than seven years. I think especially, or well, certainly in the African context with a strong university degree as well. So, you know, your time travel from starting um, you know, from starting work at least to qualifying can be often two years. Um, it, can, it can be longer. So I think that's the one thing. I think probably the more important part is the second question. Um, I mean, I, I think it, it's not something that's, you know, I think it is something that, that is, is very valuable. Um, you know, having those, those modeling skills, having those um, understanding of risk, uh, communicating risk, having those professional skills. I mean, that should be a powerful combination. Um, and I think that is the, the promise that, that we need to sell. It has to be a combination of, of those technical 
and those delivery professionalism skills. But I think the state does nothing, you know, and I think with the developments, particularly including the, the data skills in that, you know, it should be something that's, that's dynamic and modern and, you know, future-looking, not just ready for now, but ready for five, ten years in the future. So I, I think maybe what you, you know, what you said is, is in the past, but I think one can, can sit. I think one does have to think about how we position that, that sort of, you know, both UK and South African terms, that associate qualification, because I think it's more powerful um, than, you know, than maybe we've positioned before. And I very much think of it, you know, in, in medical terms as your general practitioner. You know, it's, it's someone who's got those, those actual skills. You know, they are a doctor. They need to do a lot more if they want to specialize, but they do have that foundation and that foundation where they can actually operate in a wide variety of, of um, situations and, and countries as well. Guys, thank you for a great uh, two presentations. I've got two questions, one for Andrew and one for Mark, uh, the Mark team. First of all, I think uh, in the modern society, Mark is not a lady or a gentleman. Um, so <laughs> just in the interest of inclusivity. But um, the question I have is, is the idea that he can also, that the system can also generate the answer to the question? Because that's something that is also quite exciting. I mean, being an examiner where you you post a question and you have the memo in your mind um, and your first attempt is, is just one attempt but do you see a time when the memo can actually sort of also look at the problem and and come up with the first stab yeah so <laughs> um, I understand what you're going at, and there's a lot of work in the AI community to get that but that is you're trying to say listen we've got a system that's actually an actuary that's kind of giving this thing a, a, a stab, which is... <laughs> Pretty dangerous to both. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so possibly in the future, like that level of, that side of research is not, kind of, it's not going to give you a very good first stab. Um, so Mark is more for kind of the medium term, a medium term view where that kind of AI actuary is, I think, a, a very long view. Thank you. And then, Andrew, um, I'm not very close to what's happening in the international space, but something that I find concerning sometimes is the fact that w what are we doing about CPD and post-qualification? Because I understand that we need to have a basic set, that's a skill set that's relevant, and a basic skill set that's good enough in terms of communication and teamwork. But I'm very concerned that we, we must we must know that there's still a, a, a wide range of people that should be able to qualify as actuaries. You do get people that are not good at teamwork, but that are very good at their job. And I believe we should have those people in the profession. And you have people that are not good communicators, but again, deliver excellent work. And with the right management and the right team members and the right supervision, they can still deliver world-class output. And at the same time, I don't expect to study seven years and then be a machine learning expert the day I attain my fellowship. So what is the community doing to allow post-qualification the opportunity to hone certain skills, whether that be technical, whether that be managerial, whether that be teamwork, communication? Because I'm worried that we try to sort all these things out pre-qualification, while actually there's a lot of development that needs to happen post-qualification. Yeah. I mean, I think as I mean, I think as we've discussed here. I mean, I think South Africa has one of the most progressive um, 
CPD systems. Um, and again, South Africa is, I think, leading international thinking around CPD. And maybe in terms of people who are doing the outcomes based CPD, it's important to think around some of the things that um, are in the new syllabus and the new qualities and align their own development to that. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, not, not all actuaries are, you know, s s strong or extroverts or that sort of thing. I mean, I'm uh, probably one of the biggest introverts. So, you know, it's not, you know, there is a sort of personality uh, thing that, I mean, it, it's important to know. I think it's important to be able to work with people. You know, I think people who, who can't work with other people, I think the, there is going to be a problem in delivering the professional promise. You know, people who can't communicate at all a technical concept, I think there is a problem. Uh, but I think we're quite firm that we're not expecting people to all be able to stand up and do presentations or, you know, present to boards and that sort of thing. That's not part of, of any, any qualification we want, we want as well. So I think that's, it's within limits. I think the CPD is important. I think globally um, the CPD is a bit of a political issue at international actual level. So I think most of the English-speaking organizations have good CPD systems. But I think to sort of make CPD sort of compulsory for all actuaries globally is a little bit of a political issue. I think hopefully at some stage it'll, it'll come in. Um, but I do think, I think from, from your question, I think one of the points is that we, we do need to look at the new skills coming in. And, you know, I think probably eventually people will be all moving to the outcomes-based thing and ensure that there's some alignment between people's development plans and, you know, some of the things that we sort of expecting the actuaries of the future to have, you know both technically and on the normative delivery side. I've got more of a comment for the marketing than a question, but I'd like to hear your feedback. I think the challenge um, with Mark is that it would need to be very carefully positioned to students in terms of the role it could play or should play in their revision. So as someone who's been involved in F102 and F104, the reason why people pass or fail isn't necessarily because they've got the right words in the right order. It's to do with judgment, it's to do with planning, it's to do with can they actually generate a reasonable answer to a question if they've gone blank on that list of 12 points. And that's going to make the real difference between a pass and a fail for, for most students because 25 to 75% of your F100 exams are based on judgment and not necessarily just on words. So given what Mark does now, how would you position it to students in terms of aiding in their exam preparation yeah um, so I, I think the um, like the, the key thing for us is you know this is still a, a work in progress um, and currently um, you, you know there, there is a bit of a balance um, you know it, it is difficult to to truly assess um, the, the judgment and insight um, and, and to assess you know wh when does somebody when can you really see somebody has understood a point when, when they don't they're just you know putting words in order um, I get that but that's that's sort of also the part why we're doing this research is to try and improve that and to try and see you know how can we sort of get one inch closer and then you know maybe you keep building on it and keep building and maybe somebody else comes and they say you know someone in the audience here says you know we have an insight maybe you can do this and over time you sort of get closer to that and and our, our project is, is sort of has two purposes. The, the, on the one side, it's an educational problem. Um, we sort of approach it from that angle. Um, but on the other side, it, it's also, um, y you know, an AI problem that we're trying to just, you know, develop that technology. Um, y if you can apply it to exam questions, you can apply it to so many different things. Um, 
so, so I understand the point. I, I think um, currently what, where we stand is, is just to say, if you're given um, an answer to a question, Mark can, can go through it, it can give you, you know, within a few seconds, can mark it for you, but then after that you're going to have to go look at it again and, and, and still there's a human still involved. You can't just, you know, put in papers and get out marked papers. Um, so, so I think there's a balance, but I think sort of that's why we're, we're engaged in this and why we're doing this research. Yeah. Um, sorry, so I've got a question for Andrew. Um, you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about, well, in answer to one of the questions where you said like a GP is a doctor that hasn't specialized. Um, the institute and faculty came out with a certified actuarial analyst qualification, which I kind of see as the GP of the actuarial um, field. Is ASA planning on doing anything like that? I think the certified actual analyst is probably more your sort of nurse or something like that. Or you know, it's, it's not a. Um, I mean, it's it's. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, but it's it's you know, I mean, it's 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 an important part of the actuarial system. But it's not a you know, it's not someone who would be seen as a professional actuary. You know, not not someone you'd want to go for a sort of a diagnosis of a of a condition or, or something like that. So. Um, Actual Society of South Africa, in conjunction with the UK, in fact, the global CAA, because the Society of Actuaries are also involved, uh, you know, will we'll be offering that, that qualification to, to people in South Africa. And it will play a role in, in the sort of level of qualifications. But I think your, you know, if you think of it as your sort of doctor, you know, your, your GP is your sort of doctor who's, who's qualified but not specialized. And then your, your fellow actuary in life general insurance banking is a person who's specialized in, in a particular field, you know, sort of analogous to a pediatrician or a brain surgeon or anesthetist or, or that sort of thing. So I, I think, I think, I mean, obviously it's not a, it's not a p uh, perfectly clean analogy, but I think that's probably where, where the system fits in. And I think that associate qualification of South Africa, UK, uh, America, I think has an important role to play because those, the, the IA syllabus is set at that level. It doesn't have any detail on specialist life insurance or any 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 knowledge there. So, um, yeah. So I, I, I do see that that analogy and, and the CA being at an uh, important but lower level. Um, sorry, I just realised I have another question. Um, so there's a lot of focus going on to the wider fields now, and I'm currently working in a role where I work for a company that doesn't have any actuaries. Um, how are people that still want to get the qualifications, what are we supposed to do for work-based skills if, you, if there isn't actually an actuary to report to in the company you're working in? Okay, I think the, the African work-based learning system you know, allows you to, to have a mentor who would be outside your company who's a qualified actuary. So that, would work, that person would work with your supervisor to, um, to you know, so you'll have a direct manager in, 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 in your company would be not an actuary, but then you could find an that's office, I'm sure, will give you names of people who can act as an actuarial mentor as well. So, you know, we certainly were aware of that system when we developed the, the work-based learning system. And, you know, we're aware that people do want to work in wider fields. So there is that flexibility. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's three questions, if we could start there and then go over. Rob Thompson, um, I wonder whether by restricting actuarial science to the financial world, we are painting ourselves into a corner uh, in view of the, uh, um, the, the increasing 
openness and ex uh, sensitivity to ecological and social and economic effects of entities' activities, uh, triple bottom line, if you like. So um, I would see a lot of actuarial skills uh, uh, required both in the measurement and modeling of those um, in those domains, which are not financial domains, but for example, just as we talk about financial soundness of a of a financial institution, we could be talking about ecological or social soundness or sustainability is the word used outside of the profession. Um, and measuring and modeling quantitative um, measures uh, in those fields, maybe for next time around when we're next looking at in, in uh, extending or reconsidering the scope of the syllabus, we mm. could start giving consideration to uh, triple bottom line thinking in our, uh, uh, and not just financial thinking in the definition of the yeah. scope of actuarial science. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, you know, that's, that's an important point. I mean, I think we're all aware of, um, I mean, especially those of us sitting in a drought in the Western Cape, I think we're all aware of uh, climate change and the implications around that. Um, I mean, I do think that, the, that, you know, a lot of the techniques that I, I think you're referring to are probably part of the actual toolkit where I suppose you, you know you can replace sort of rands and cents with with uh, you know various sort of climatic or other indicators as well. So uh, you know it may be a case of applying that that toolkit in, in different ways and giving wider examples as well. So I would hope that a lot of what's in the the new syllabus can actually adapt to to the important area of of uh, climate change. Um, you know, ecological implications as well, but certainly something to think around. As I said, is a, you know, this, this is an evolving process. We're hoping that the next round of international thinking will, will start soon. You know, we certainly don't see our syllabus in South Africa as static, and we're certainly going to be thinking, particularly, I think, around the fellowship subjects soon as well, but, but point well noted. <laughs> uh, a question on Mark: How open or closed is the project? Um, do you, have you sought? It seems like you've got quite big plans. Of okay, we we'll start with the actuarial profession, but then kind of move on to um, other kind of e exams and examining bodies. Have you given any thought to trying to say open source the project, trying to get um, uh, contributors from other, elsewhere around the world, or are you trying to actually make a business out of this? Or I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Um, at the moment, this is just research, all right? And ideally, you would open source it and say everybody contribute, because that would be great. But that would mean that we'd have to share the data as well. And as is not, I'm not very happy with the data floating around. Everybody's exam marks floating around everywhere. Can you not anonymize the data? Um, th that was our suggestion, but they still want to keep it private. Question at the back. Um, Andrew, a question to you on the all-rounder. Um, the casualty actuarial society in America. I, it, I seem to think that they're more into casualty insurance. So how does how does that play out? We we want to be all-rounders, but in America they they seem to have a specialist in in short-term insurance. Yeah, I think an all-rounder. Yeah, you know, about that. I mean, and not just because I mean, I think we. You know, a lot of us do specialize in one field, and some of us will work in that one field 
throughout our lifetime. Some of us will consider changing that. I mean, the Casualty Actual Society is in a bit of a, well, is a unique association because I think it's the only actual association in the world that works in a single special field, which is general insurance. I think all the other global associations will work in a number of, of, of different practice areas. Um, and we had some interesting discussions with them around the new syllabus. And I mean, they certainly challenged a lot to to be relevant to that particular practice area, and you know, eventually they they supported the the, the new syllabus as well. But I think all round is more than just being able to move between practice areas, but it's also being able to operate in a number of different roles within that particular practice area. You know, more you know technical roles, more general business roles. You know, opportunities to to communicate, apply your delivery skills as well. So all round is not just you know, part of it is, I think, the ability to, to move between practice areas, but I think part of it is also flexibility to play different roles, even if in the same organization or, or uh, practice area. We've got time for one more question, if there are any. Thanks. At the back. Uh, hi. Um, I think my question is to the MARC team. Um, why did you not start with uh, more technical subjects? Um, it just seems, well, I think in, in theory that would be easier uh, considering it's going to be a marking tool and there are a lot more students doing their CT subjects possibly around the world. Um, so why not start there and then do you plan to go into the CT subjects as well? Because from my understanding of the presentation, it seems to be more around the, the more wordy subjects. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so. Um, uh, the main focus for us was, uh, so the technical subjects, um, we felt it, it wasn't as difficult or um, as much of a problem to mark your own papers. It, it's quite simple to, to look at it, uh, you know, if you're doing some calculation or some proof or whatever, to look at the memo, and, and then you can very easily understand from that where you went wrong or, or what, what, you know, what your mistake is, whether you got the correct answer or not. Um, and, and that's not where we personally had an issue. Um, the, the issue for us was, um, was with the CA1 and above, um, and that's that's sort of you know what, what our issue was and where we wanted to focus our research. Um, and specifically, we also wanted to um, do some research on on, on text-based uh, analytics. Um, so so definitely that's that's definitely an area that you can um, expand it to. Um, but for the time being, we're only focused on on that. Yeah. Just just to add on to that as well. Um, this is all kind of systems-based and digital, and the CT subjects aren't generally written. Uh, digitally you know, on pen and paper, which makes it introduces a whole new problem. Right. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for attending, and thanks to our speakers for their contribution. If I can remind you all to please rate them on the app, um, and it's time for the next session. Thank you. Thank you.